Hey, uh, this morning I want to thank the, uh, the men's team who, uh, who put on a fantastic men's retreat last week. Yeah, thank you guys. We were, uh, we were away talking about the scripture that says, abide in me. And we were trying to unpack that a little bit about, you know, what does it mean when Jesus says, hey, ab- abide in me? And what it means is it means remain in me, right? That's, that's another translation, remain in me. Like, like when life gets really tough, remain in me. When, when life gets really difficult, stay the course. When life is going great and not so great, Jesus says, stay connected to me. Because at the end of the day, your life and your death actually depend on it. He says, the branch that doesn't remain in me, it, it dries up and it withers and it dies. But the person who stays in me or the person who remains in me or the person who abides in me is somebody who is going to be life-giving. So if you are empty this morning, and if you find that your inner man is dry or rotting out or dying or dead, then I want to ask you, What is your connection like with Jesus? And and maybe more importantly, what what does your journey with Jesus really look like? I mean, is your journey with Jesus this, this exciting journey? Or is it a stagnant journey? I mean, is it, is it a journey that has lost its way or, or is it a journey that is so focused and determined because it's rooted in Scripture and has every intention of being kingdom-minded in all of what you do? This morning, I'm, I'm excited to finally start this new series called Jesus, Friend of Sinners as we dive into the book of Luke. And today, I'm hoping to help deal with some questions that I know some people here are asking and some questions that are becoming prevalent in our culture today. And so this morning I need you to pay really, really close attention because some of this information is tricky even for me. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1 and we'll look on from verses 1 to 4. Luke chapter 1, 1 to 4. This is what Luke says. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. All right, let's just stop right there for a second. Because I have a question for you. Why do you choose to believe in the Bible? Okay, I'll help you answer some of these questions. Okay, so some of you might say because I was raised that way. 
right? I, I came to church and I grew up in the church and this is what we believed. And so I believe in the Bible. Some of you might say because of what my family experienced. And my family says that, hey, you got to stand on what the Bible says because everything in the Bible is true. And because mom and dad say that, you just believe it and we move on. Some of you believe in the Bible because you tried it and it worked. But how do you know that you can trust the words in the book? There's this ongoing problem in our culture today because professors and teachers all around, they're, they're telling students, listen, you can't trust that book. And here is Luke, and he's telling us that there were a lot of people who tried to summarize and write documents regarding the works of Jesus. And so Luke does his own research. Now, the first thing you need to know about Luke is that Luke is no ordinary man. He's a very well-educated person. In fact, he's a doctor at the time who is meticulous with the research that he does. And now he's going to write his story of the gospel using evidence that's based on eyewitness testimony to the events that are all surrounding this man named Jesus. And so what he did is he went about and he traveled and he interviewed and he talked to the eyewitnesses and, and he talked to different people in different centers where Jesus was at and he was really close friends with Paul and with, with Peter. He knew them personally and he asked them a whole bunch of questions and he read all of these early church documents and then he decided to write down an orderly account of the things that happened in order for this person who's named Theophilus for him to be sure about all these things that we're saying about Jesus. So who is Theophilus? Most people aren't really sure. But in those days, publishing was really labor-intensive, and there's no printing presses at the time, and so manuscripts had to be copied a few at a time by scribes, and copies were really, really expensive. And there are some people who believe that Theophilus was this rich person uh, who was helping to pay for the publication of Luke's gospel. And now Luke is dedicating his gospel or this book to this person named Theophilus who's also a young Christ follower who needed to be assured about the truth of who this Jesus is. And now Dr. Luke sets out on this quest to present his account of the life of Jesus with absolute accuracy by looking for evidence in those who are the eyewitnesses to all the things that happened in the life of Jesus. In other words, the things that Luke is about to unpack for us are accomplishments that Jesus made in order to fulfill scripture that was given centuries before now coming together in this crisp focus in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys enjoy watching crime show TV or, or courtroom drama, CSI? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
One person. For those of you who enjoy that, that type of TV, you know that the most important thing in that crime, in that, on that crime scene or in the courtroom is evidence. The most important thing that CSI needs to capture accurately is the evidence. And that's what Luke sets out to do. He sets out to present accurate evidence of the events that are surrounding the life of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, Luke is trying to say, look, I'm writing these things with eyewitness account, having talked to all of those eyewitnesses so that you don't need to think that this is just some fairy tale. So that you don't need to think that this is just some legend that some people just made up. Have you ever wondered if you're believing in a fairy tale? Have you ever wondered if you can really trust the scriptures? You ever wonder if you can trust the validity of scripture? These are growing statements in our culture today. And I'm sure you have friends or teachers or professors who, who say things like, hey, listen, we can't trust the scriptures because it's so old. Right? You, ever, you ever hear that argument before? I mean, you can't trust scripture because how do we know that some monks or some scribes, how do we know that they didn't change what was written? That's an ongoing thing that's becoming part of our culture today. I mean, how can we trust in the accuracy of what was written, if it's as old as it claimed to be, there must have been some changes along the way. Anyone here ever hear some of these arguments before? Recently, I had some conversations with some people in this room about this, and it's, it's becoming a part of our culture. Any, anyone ever think of these arguments before? I mean, how can we really trust? Right? Yeah, there's a couple of you. Do you remember when you were a kid playing that game, Broken Telephone? Where, where one person whispers a sentence to the next person, and they whisper that to the next person, the next person, and the next person. And finally, the last person, he says out loud what he thinks he heard. And it's always a mess, right? Uh, I'm a person who uses Siri to do all of my texting, and that has gotten me into so much trouble, okay? Uh, I'll say something like, hey, Siri, text Tim. Tim, I'm running a little late. And Siri will say, would you like me to send the text? And I'll say, yes, send it. Later on, I'll get a message from Tim that says, what on earth are you talking about? And I'll read the text that I sent, and it'll say, Tim, the pancake is on the floor. Right? It's a problem in transmission. If you've ever been confronted with the notion that we can't trust the Scripture, or that Scripture has been altered, in a way that it can't be trusted or that scribes and monks must have changed the original manuscripts or we can't trust the transmission from one generation to, to generation, then the first question that you need to ask is this, who told you that? Who told you that we can't trust the scriptures? I mean, what's your evidence? Have you ever done any research an ancient textual transmission. And so for those of you who are graduating from high school, going on to college, those of you in college and, and, and maybe dealing with some academics who, who are starting to challenge that, 
I ask you, all you need to do is say this, show me the evidence. What's the evidence? They might have heard someone say something, or they may have heard someone's rationale and reasoning and then made up some false assumptions. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people who say, you can't trust the scriptures. All of these people have done little or no research on the subject. And if you're here this morning, and maybe a friend or a colleague or a professor has convinced you that maybe people altered the original manuscripts, then I want to tell you what that means. It means that these monks or these scribes who wanted to change the Bible uh, would have had to have this really well thought out manuscript conspiracy where they would have to change every manuscript copy that was printed and have it returned before anyone realized that it was changed. And if there's only one or two or three copies, I mean, maybe that's possible for some scribes to get together and figure out how to do that. But I want to put this into perspective for you. Julius Caesar, he has some ancient writings, and this is how we know about his wars. There are 10 manuscript copies that were found. We don't have the original, but we have 10 manuscript copies. The writings of Homer, we have less than 10 manuscripts. Plato's writings, we, we do not have the original writings of Plato, but again, we have these copies of what Plato wrote, and we have seven copies of what Plato wrote. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, anyone want to guess how many copies we have? Anyone? Take a wild guess. We have six. We have 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts to compare and determine what the original author wrote. Yeah, that's amazing. Anyone know when Plato was writing? I'll just tell you. He was writing in the year 420, well, 427 B.C., 427 years before Christ. Do you know when the earliest copy of Plato was found? It wasn't 100 years before Christ. It wasn't during the birth of Christ. It wasn't during his death. It wasn't even 100 years after Christ. The earliest copy we have is 900 years after the death of Jesus. But it's funny that you never hear, well, you can't trust Plato. And how do you know that a monk didn't change what Plato was writing? You never heard that. I bet you've never heard that before. When it comes to Julius Caesar's writings, the, the earliest copy we have is a thousand years after the original. But no one is tearing down the walls in college talking about the validity of Caesar. And when it comes to Aristotle, did you know that the earliest copy that we have comes 1,400 years after the original? But when it comes to the New Testament, we can put our hands on copies that were written only decades after the originals. So if you still believe that scribes or monks wanted to change the Bible, this is what needed to happen. They would have had to find 
over 6,000 documents, doctor them in such a way that you wouldn't see any of their ink work, get it back to where they stole it from, and never tell anyone what they did. And here's another problem. Jesus, he says, go into all the world and preach the good news. And so right away, the New Testament started being translated into Syriac and Coptic and in Latin. And so now, these monks have to find all 6,000 manuscripts, doctor them up, don't show any of their ink work, get it back to where they stole it from, go find all the Syriac, Coptic, and Latin documents, translate those to match the lies that they changed earlier. Now, does anyone here believe in the absurdity of that? The evidence tells us something important. Because God has allowed so many of these copies of the original to be translated, there is no possible way that a scribe or a monk or anyone could have changed the original manuscripts. And some of you might be here today thinking, but Pastor, my, my professor and my teacher and some of my friends, man, they, they're talking about these errors that are in the Bible. Did you know that there's some transmission problems with the Bible? And what I want to do is better show you on a slide rather than kind of explain this. It's going to be explained better on a slide when people talk about the mistakes that were found in the Bible. Let, let's say that you're looking for the original manuscript and you realize that you're never going to find it, but you find four different copies of the original. And so in the first copy, you see an error that looks like that. And then in copy two, you see another error that looks like that. And then you get copy three, and copy three looks like that. And then copy four, you find copy four, and copy four looks just like that. Then here's the question. If you look at all four copies, are you able to reconstruct what the original is? Well, yes. It, not only that, you can reconstruct what the original says beyond a shadow of a doubt. We can figure out what the original said, and the New Testament has far fewer variations than in this example here. Did you know that there are experts who are not believers who would never deny the accuracy and the authenticity of the transmission of our scriptures. I have this quote from this man named Frederick Kenyon, who is a scholar of ancient texts and who's also, I believe, an unbeliever. This is what he says. The Christian can take the Bible in their hand without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God without essential loss from generation to generation. An unbeliever saying this. Time Magazine wrote an article a number of years ago that was called, How True is the Bible? And this wasn't a work by a number of believers. The article looked at all of the arguments that were trying to discredit our scripture. And in their article, they concluded this. They said that after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns, the Bible has survived and is better for the siege. Man, when you start looking at the facts, 
When you start looking at the research and when you start looking at the evidence, you can't help but come to this realization that the book that we believe in is no ordinary book. And even unbelieving scholars have come to the same conclusion. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, it says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in all righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. Maybe we ought to stop looking at the book as though it's just another book. We don't believe that the book is some ordinary book, but we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that this book is God-breathed. And so doesn't it make sense that our God would have ordained that the text of our Bible would have been preserved with greater care and greater intensity and greater integrity than any other book known to man. And so at the end of the day, God has proven time and time again that his book is historically accurate. He has proven time and time again the book has survived the test of time. And the book has withstood every argument against it. It has gone through the fire and it has come out stronger because the book is no ordinary book. So why then do so many of us treat it like it's an ordinary book? Why why do so many of us fail to read this book? Why do so many of us fail to dive into this book? This morning, I'm going to ask Tim to come forward as as we begin to close. Listen to what the Bible says about the word. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, crucible, like gold refined seven times. In Ephesians, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit of life. For the word of God is alive. The word of God is alive and active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of the Lord endures forever.
Hey, this morning, if you are feeling weak, spend some time in the Word and you will be strengthened. If you are feeling lost, spend some time in the Word and you will get direction. If you're feeling like you're dying and that you're dry, spend some time in the Word and you will have life. If you are looking for God's will for your life, spend some time in the Word and He will reveal His will for you. If you are hungry for more of God, then spend some more time in the Word and He will nourish your soul. If you are looking for discernment, spend some time in the Word and He will give you understanding. If you find yourself that you're in a place where you're always tempted, then spend some time in the Word and He will help you to overcome. And if you are anxious or depressed or overwhelmed, spend some time in the Word because it is full of God's promises. Man, I'm here to remind you this morning that God's Word is alive, and God's Word is powerful, and God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word has power to build you up. It has power to help you face your temptations. It contains answers to help you deal with all of the things that are going on in your life today. I'll close with this story. Towards the end of uh, the 19th century, a young woman of a slave-owning family purchased a slave girl in the market in northern Madagascar. And in the days that followed, the slave girl relieved herself or relieved her, her, her loneliness by reading the, the only book that she had, which was the New Testament. And her owner was so impressed that the girl could read because she couldn't read herself. And so the slave girl taught her owner to read, and the textbook that she used was the New Testament. And and others were soon invited to the reading, and before long, a small crowd of seekers gathered around this slave girl, and a church was born. And they say that this church is still alive today with many church plants that were coming from this group. This is all from the power of Scripture. The power of Scripture can change hearts. And the power of Scripture can change minds. And the power of Scripture can transform people and it can bring people together. your eyes closed and your heads bowed this morning. This morning I hope that I've given you some reasons to fall in love with Scripture again. I I hope that you have a renewed appreciation for the value of Scriptures that you hold in your hand. And the challenge before you today is simple. How is your personal time with the Word? I mean, are you going deep in this word? Are you diving into the word? Or are you just expecting somebody else to do it for you? I mean, I hope that you are encouraged this morning to renew a commitment in your life to spend some time with the scriptures. And God has preserved this so carefully 
just for you. He has things that he wants to reveal to you, and it's found in his word. Some of you are looking for peace, and I'm telling you it's in his word. Some of you are dealing with some issues and not sure how to navigate through that. I'm telling you it's in his word. So how much time will you set to spend with the scriptures? When does that time need to be? So right now, I'm going to ask that you would commit to something with God. Would you commit a time with God where you're spend diving into his word and learning from him and growing in him and abiding in him? I believe the Lord is calling you to make that commitment this morning.